1: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression, and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode.
0: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. I am Gabrielle Hacohen and joining me, as always, is my BFF, voracious reader and top tier femme, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter.
1: Hello, hello.
0: Hello, Sadie. As I understand it, like I said just a, a moment ago, that you are a voracious reader and that you have been doing quite a bit of reading this week.
1: Yeah, the last several weeks, actually, this, um, the book that we're discussing today is only about 500 pages, but it is both dense and full of trauma. So it took me a minute to get through it.
0: So what exactly is it that you have been reading?
1: The book is called Fundamental Seduction. It is by attorney Voyle Glover. And it is the most banned of all banned books in fundamentalism.
0: So if you're ex-IFB or if you're ex Camp IFB especially, and you're hearing us talk about this, you're probably freaking out right now. But if you're like me, this book is a book that you've heard brought up a couple of times on the show. And it's a book about like why a guy that you know is a bad guy is in fact a bad guy. But we've been trying to get our hands on a copy of this book, and only recently have we been able to do so. This is another one of those episode topics that we've had on our list since the beginning, since we started this show, but for obvious reasons, namely not having a copy of the book, we haven't been able to do so until now.
1: Well, we have been trying to get our hands on a copy of this book for over a year. I have been trying to get my hands (laughs) on a copy for the better part of a decade. I first heard about this book about eight years ago when I had left Hiles Anderson College And I was trying to get context and make sense of my entire life experience up to that point. I found the Biblical Evangelist article online. And I knew that this book existed because of talk around that book or that article. And then I spent the next seven or eight years looking for a copy. And I looked on eBay and Amazon and they were so expensive. I was finally able to find a copy for under $100, which is a miracle and I'm so happy to be have been able to finally get my hands on this.
0: So that is what we're here to talk about today. We're going to get straight into it. But before we do, I just need to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism in general and the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. It is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, you can join our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. You can go to our subreddit, which is reddit.com r slash Eden Exodus, and you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. And most of all, the best thing that you can do if you want to help our show out is just keep recommending it to your friends and your family, you know, your coworkers, anyone you know who you think would like this this podcast, please let them know.
1: I saw us tagged in the cults subreddit this week. You did? Yeah, somebody just just uh, tagged our, our username on Reddit is you slash leaving Eden podcast. Um, people have been tagging us all over Reddit, but that was a new sub that I hadn't seen us on before. So that was exciting.
0: Well, that's fun. And speaking of new things, um, I'm about to get to our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, and we've got a couple new ones. I want to say a special big thank you to all of our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. Um, we'll get on a live video chat with you guys sometime soon. We had a really fun one a couple weeks ago, and all of you new people will make sure that we get you on the next one that we do. But our Faith Promise Missions tier Patrons are Dee, Dee Keppel, Emery Fairlosser, Jessica Tambo, New Faith Promise Mission Tier Patron Kater We. Uh, I like saying that Kater We, Kater We. Catherine Schneider. Yeah, it, it is fun. katherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Ruthie. Uh, oh, another new one, Sarah Reese. And as always, West the Cowboy. We love all of our patrons. Um. And we love our Faith Promise missions to your patrons, especially. Yeah, thank they you. Give us more thank money. you so
1: much to all of our patrons. Uh, thank you to our Faith Promise missions patrons. Y'all get sparkly brain jars when I eventually start my cult.
0: Yes, it'll be great. <laughs> Just like Scientology, the more money you give them, the higher up you get to be.
1: Yeah, I oh, I can uh, get. I can get some thetans out of those Faith Promise missions patrons.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. If you liked our last week's episode, just one more thing I want to say before we get into it, uh, and because we've been getting a bunch of messages about this. Uh, and we want to say thank you to other people, it, because this is another way in which you can support our show. Um, if you liked last week's episode about the Abeka curriculum, that episode would not have been possible without the help from our listeners because the textbooks that we reviewed, um, the you know, all the materials that we reviewed in that episode were materials that were sent to us by our listeners. So if you happen to be ex IFB or ex fundy or you left a different cult and you have cult materials stored somewhere in the house, like, you know, pamphlets, textbooks, tracts, things like that. <clears throat> and you don't want them, They're just taking up space. Consider sending them to us. We will put them to good use.
1: I do suggest that people reach out through the Facebook group or messages in any way before just sending things uh, so I don't get duplicates. Um, Also because I live in an apartment and um, my husband loves and supports my collection of cult materials. (laughs) But my husband is also an incredibly neat and organized person. So I really have to keep it to a, a small corner well organized space
0: You should let me store them at my house Although I know you want to keep them close So that you can study them If you store them at my house It'll be like checking them out from the library
1: Yeah that's true <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> um, Sometimes when you grow up in a cult You sleep better surrounded by Horrible propaganda <laughs> But our, yeah. um, our our PO box is 25 Northwest 23rd place uh, Suite 6 Number 407 Portland, Oregon, 97210. And I am eventually going to remember to make a pinned post in the Facebook group with that.
0: Anyway, Sadie. That's me. That is you. Why don't you start us off and tell us why this book, Fundamental Seduction, is the Rolex Daytona of books about IFB deconstruction.
1: So to understand all of this, I'm going to have to give you a primer over. Quite a few decades. If you want much more oh. detail and conversation about this, we highly recommend that you check out our First Family of Fundamentalism episodes. But I'm going to summarize all of it in a real quick timeline for you. In 1959, the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana hired a young Texan pastor named Jack Hiles, who moved to Indiana with his wife and four young children. Hiles had pastored several churches in Texas, one of which he had grown to about 4,000 members. That will be important later. Hiles was a bit of a controversial figure in Hammond. He led the church out of the American Baptist movement and into being an independent fundamental Baptist or IFB church. And as the church grew, he became one of the figureheads of the IFB movement, along with J. Frank Norris, John R. Rice, Lester Roloff, and other men like that. Hiles clashed with wealthy church members, but eventually found favor in the blue-collar workers of the area due to his plain language and his characterization of himself as a simple man. Throughout the 60s and 70s, First Baptist Church of Hammond grew exponentially and became one of the first American megachurches. They reached a membership of of 10,000 people, And at one point, they were certified the largest Sunday school in America. Hiles started a high school, a college, and an elementary school associated with the church in the 1970s. Jack Hiles' only son, David Hiles, became youth pastor of the church when he was only 19 years old. And while the IFB doesn't practice a strict line of succession where a son would automatically inherit his father's pastor job, it was very apparent that David was the chosen one and that he was being groomed to take his father's ministry over one day. By the early 1980s, the church still had over 10,000 members and often had attendance between the main church service, the bus kid services, other ministries of over 20,000 people on a Sunday. Hiles Anderson College had around 2,000 students, many of whom were there, to learn how to build a church just like Jack Hiles did. Hiles Publications published Hiles books, pamphlets, and sermon tapes and sent them around the country with Jack Hiles as he traveled and preached in he claimed as many as 50 or more churches per year. In 1980 or 1981, David Hiles very suddenly accepted the pastorate of his father's former church, Miller Road Baptist Church in Texas. This was seen as another step on his road to eventually coming home to become pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond one day. But just a few years later... Rumors began to trickle out of Miller Road, and David Hiles just as suddenly returned home to First Baptist Church of Hammond in 1984 without his first wife, Paula, with his new girlfriend, Brenda Stevens, who he later married. They also brought along Brenda's two sons, Andrew and Brent, and then on November 2nd, 1985, 17-month-old Brent Stevens was found dead under extremely suspicious circumstances that we will discuss later. Suddenly, Jack Hiles amped up his sermons on loyalty. He spoke at length about how church members should never listen to gossip of any kind, and we'll cover that in depth when we start talking about this book. Over the next few years, the sermons became more and more insistent, gossip is a sin, disloyalty is a sin, and one of Jack Hyle's major catchphrases, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. There were scandals at Hyle's Anderson College in the 80s, particularly male staff members being caught in compromising positions with female college students, but Hyle's strict no-gossip rule kept them from spreading too extensively. By the late 1980s, 1987 or so, there were also allusions in his sermons to my enemies and people who want to destroy this ministry and Satan's attack on my ministry. But the rank and file of First Baptist Church members wouldn't really have known exactly who he was talking about when he said my enemies. They would just know that such a powerful man of God as Hiles was certainly attracted the attention of Satan who would want to shut the whole thing down. And then in 1989, the bombshell hit. Evangelist Robert Sumner published in the IFB newsletter the biblical evangelist, an open letter accusing Jack Hiles of having an almost 20-year affair with one of his secretaries, Jenny Nischik. Jenny Nischik worked for Hiles Publications and had an office at the church building with a private connecting door to Hiles' own office. Vic Nischik, Jenny's former husband, had filed for divorce a few years prior and was now making his story known with the help of Sumner. Vic Nischek said that Hiles had effectively stolen his wife over the years that she had worked for him. All of the details of these allegations, especially some very specific money allegations, are in that first Family of Fundamentalism episode. It's episode two, titled The Battle of 1989.
0: So, where does this book, Fundamental Seduction, come into all of this?
1: Fundamental Seduction was published in 1990 by Foyle Glover. He was a former First Baptist Church member and an attorney, and he had had a front row seat to all of these scandals and the accompanying cover-ups over the years that he was a member. He wrote this book with the mindset of a prosecuting attorney. So he laid out his claims and submitted his evidence with the intention, not that he would tell people what to think about Jack Hiles, but that people would read it and use that use those facts to make up their own minds about Jack Hiles.
0: So we've said this before. We've said this earlier in the episode, that this book is crazy hard to get your hands on. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But I've had, basically, I've had an eBay alert and I've had an Amazon an alert for this book for like over a year, almost two years, in fact. And anytime a copy goes up for sale, the price is just something crazy. Like the cheapest I've ever seen this book is for $150. There's one on eBay right now for like $200. There's one on Amazon right now for like $350. I've seen them go for... Like a thousand, or I think the highest I've ever seen was like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars,
1: yeah, I was unbelievably lucky to get my hands on one for under a hundred. I saw one at the beginning of the pandemic for about seven hundred, and I almost blew my entire stimulus check on it, like it was in my cart, my cart my card number was in the box, and I just I didn't do it, and now you I'm have to say no, well, now I'm glad I didn't, but but that is how desperate I was to get my hands on this. Like when my husband and I, yeah. when we get a stimulus check, we try to use half for important things like adult stuff and half for fun stuff. And I was going to spend my entire fun stuff budget on this book. Oof. But I'm glad I'm glad that I didn't because I was finally after literally almost a decade of looking able to find one.
0: Yeah, for, I mean, what is a high price for a book, but not a high price? Yeah, I paid book.
1: about $70 for mine and... <laughs> i felt like i got the deal of a century
0: we also want to thank listeners for this again because what it was a podcast listener who told you that there was one for sale who, who like pointed that out to yeah
1: you, right? it was somebody who um was we were talking on the ama that i did on reddit and then they sent me a link to this much less expensive copy
0: wow yeah so thank you to the person that did that but i want to ask is there any particular reason why this book is in such short supply and why it commands such high prices?
1: I'm glad you asked because I have a theory.
0: Okay. Okay. A theory. I love your theories. I love to hear you pontificate. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I love my theories too.
0: <laughs> you know what? I appreciate that self-empowerment right there. Let's hear your theory.
1: When I was thinking about telling you my theory on this episode, a key piece of information that I was missing was how many copies of this book ever existed in the first place. So due to a weird set of circumstances that I did not see coming, I was able to get in contact with Mr. Voile Glover, the author of this book. I did not expect to be able to talk to him, and we only had a few minutes to talk. It was not a full interview, but I, strangely, was able to get on the phone with him this week, and he was able to tell me that between eight and ten thousand copies of this book were originally printed.
0: So that's fewer than the regular attendance at First Baptist Church of Hammond during the time when this book was written.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, slightly fewer.
0: I can't imagine that this book would have had like a huge audience outside of Northwest Indiana and the Chicago area, anyway.
1: Well, it's a it's it's. It's a niche audience because only people who are either in the area or Hiles Anderson College graduates in other parts of the country, like only a certain type of person would care about this book. And many people from First Baptist Church of Hammond never read this book most of the people who ordered it were likely people who had already left First Baptist over the years. I asked Mr. Glover where people were able to buy this book because that's something I always wondered as well. How did you get your hands on this when there wasn't an Amazon and there wasn't an eBay? Like how did they hear of it? How did they get a copy in their hands? And he said that some small bookstores in the area, like small Christian bookstores, some of them agreed to carry the book and many of them turned him down because of the subject matter. And then there were also like print advertisements. Like if you've ever read a really old book and in the back of the book it's got an ad like send X amount of money to this address and we'll send you this book. There print advertisements like that. And people would send checks to the publishing company and then they would send him a book.
0: So he'd put an ad in the biblical evangelist.
1: Yes. And it, it seems like the kind of thing there may have even been ads in like, I don't know, coffee shop bulletin boards or whatever the nineties equivalent of that is.
0: I think we'll get into this a little bit later because a lot of the information that he has in here, it's, you know, it's verifiable because it's it's interviews that he's done with people. So so that's what most of this is. But I think that this book is probably like an accurate characterization because what kind of money does Voile Glover stand to make on writing a 500 page book that's going to sell 10,000 copies?
1: I like. Not I don't think much, especially because he's self published, and you know we know self publishing is fairly expensive. On the back of the the copy that I have, it says the original price was sixteen ninety five.
0: Yeah, so I mean sixteen ninety five times like that's like a hundred and something. That's like a hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, maybe. but
1: a lot of that is going to get caught up in in publishing costs
0: right but he's an attorney
1: right but he he says in the in the pre, uh, like the preface to this book that he essentially quit doing attorney work for a year to complete the book
0: wow so he really just like wants this info out there yes
1: according to him and i absolutely believe this um he just broke even like he made enough off the book to get himself through the year that he didn't do His actual job.
0: Yeah, but still, like, he was able to sell eight to 10 copies. I mean, eight to 10,000 copies. Of this book. Yeah. That's a lot of work.
1: So you would have had to know about it existing through word of mouth and then either go looking for it in independent bookstores or call bookstores around town. Hey, do you have this book? Or you'd have to know where to write to get a copy. And in the back of this book, there is one of those order forms where you can order The Wizard of God, which is Vicknestrick's book.
0: And this guy is, and that's a name that's going to come up like a bunch of times in this episode. We're going to talk about him a
1: lot. Right. Um... Uh, So when I spoke to Mr. Glover, uh, I did ask him for a future interview. He does seem to be very interested in doing that, which makes me so happy. I fangirled and tried to keep it inside. (laughs) Um,
0: He's a bit of a bad boy, man. He's the bad boy of XIFB, like being a bad boy before it was cool to be a bad boy, you know, but
1: I, I made sure that he knew that there are plenty of people who would be highly interested in. If he was willing to sit down and do an interview with us, he seemed, I believe he will. So send all your good vibes for that. I also let him know that there are plenty of people who would buy his book if he ever did another printing. So I don't have a date on when he might be able to come speak to us, but I do think it will eventually happen. So stay tuned for that.
0: So there weren't, that many copies of the book made to begin with. But you so you could get money, so you could get this book by sending money to an address or by finding it in a bookstore. But why are they so difficult to come by? Because if it's just such a niche audience book, it doesn't really seem like there would be a huge demand for it to begin with.
1: Yeah, that's where my theory comes in. Some people who were at First Baptist Church of Hammond at the time believe, and this is just a conspiracy theory. I don't have any proof. Um, but I absolutely believe it that high-level First Baptist Church of Hammond staff members may have been told by Jack Hiles to buy up as many copies of this book as they could and then either store or burn or destroy them. Again, I have zero proof. Um, but I, I think personally, my my little conspiracy theory is that to this day, there are First Baptist Church staff members who go around to thrift stores and garage sales in the area and keep an eye out for this book and keep an eye out for Vickness Chick's book, Wizard of God, and buy them to keep them out of the hands of the general public. And then that would drive the price up for a couple reasons. Number one, they if these books are being taken out of circumstances, circulation or being destroyed, they become naturally become more and more rare over time. So if 8,000 were printed, but half of them have gotten destroyed over the years or are lost or otherwise not in circulation, well, now there's only half of what there was to begin with. But number two, if my theory is correct, First Baptist Church of Hammond also has staff members who keep an eye out for this book on eBay. And this is 100% out of my head, but what if... Their staff members have eBay alerts set for this book. And what if the church bankrolls them buying it? Like, what if there is a, you know, if you get to a certain level on Hiles Anderson's staff or First Baptist Church of Hammond's staff.
0: It's like spare no expense.
1: Yeah. What if there's just like a kind of unspoken thing of like, well, if you happen to see this and you buy it for $500 on eBay, the college will reimburse you. Or the church will reimburse you. So
0: they're just going to be bidding and bidding and bidding on eBay, driving the price of this up.
1: That is what I think happens, and you can believe that or not, because I, there's there's no reason, uh, like there's no proof that I can give you, uh, other than other than this is what I 100% believe. But then, like, it drives the price up on eBay because they bid and bid and bid to like make sure that they get it, and more people don't read this material. And then the next person who has one to sell on eBay looks it up and they see, oh, this other copy just went for $200 the other day. I can price mine at $300 because there's demand for this.
0: Yeah. So one anecdote that I remember regarding this book is that from our first Family of Fundamentalism series, you told this story that Jack Hiles' successor, Jack Scop, ended a many year long friendship with somebody just because that person admitted to having read this book.
1: Yeah, Jerry K. Fitz, who wrote Profane Pulpit, which is basically this book, but for Jack Scop. Wow. It's the 20 years later version.
0: We should review that at some point. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but th- like, that's the level of radioactive that they're treated. like owning this book. Like, it, it is uh, it's something that you just can't come back from. So it makes sense that they would see their like this as their mission to rid the world of this book.
1: Yes. And I think that is probably all the context that we need. If you are ready, I'm ready to jump into the contents of the most banned book of the IFB.
0: The most banned book. I want to know why they want to destroy it so badly. It's got to be like Fundy Kryptonite.
1: It absolutely is. So uh, oh. first chapter is about Mr. Glover's reasons for writing this book he lays out a bit of what I said in the introduction, like the timeline and the allegations against Jack Hiles. This book is written, it's written by an attorney. The whole thing is, writ- is laid out like a prosecutor's case. So this is like the opening statement.
0: So if Glover is treating this as a prosecuting attorney, what are the proverbial and or literal crimes that he is alleging that Jack Hiles committed?
1: That, I think, is the very interesting and very necessary direction that this book takes. I was expecting this book to try to prove that Hiles had an affair with Jenny Nistrik, or try to prove that David Hiles killed Brent Stevens. But that's not the direction that this is taking. The direction that this book takes is to attempt to show beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jack Hiles was a hypocrite, a liar, and a con artist. That is what he is trying to show the metaphorical jury which is the readers of this book.
0: Well, I want to say he's personally already got me on board. <laughs> I already believe that Jack Hiles is a hypocrite, a liar, and a con artist. Of course, we know the Nishik affair 100% happened. We saw the Mari clip uh, where, where he was on Mari Povich, and you could tell he was lying through his teeth. We've all seen the door that was allegedly didn't exist, that Jack Hiles said didn't exist, and we've seen pictures of it. And with the Stevens murder, I don't know if the Stevens murder is provable because dave hiles had the evidence destroyed allegedly
1: allegedly but,
0: yeah Alleged. we have to say allegedly because he's not we have to say allegedly
1: her. for now let's be optimistic we have to say al- let's be optimistic. we used yeah. to have to call josh duggar alleged sex criminal and now we can just call him a sex criminal so there's That's always true. hope but people in 1990 they didn't yeah. have access to the evidence that we have now when when i was researching this over the past like 8 years, I was able to google the Biblical Evangelist article. I was able to find forums where people discussed this stuff. I was able to find Dave Hiles deposition, which is printed in this book, um in the the coroner's inquest on Prince Stephen's death. I was able to find that online. People didn't have access to any of those online resources in 1990 when this book came out. They needed to be convinced to even look at the biblical evangelist article to begin with. They needed, and not only that, they needed to be convinced that it was okay to even consider whether Jack Hiles could be a hypocrite and a liar and a conman. Glover had to convince them to listen before he ever had a chance to convince them that he was right.
0: So he wrote this book, like the, the target audience for this book is First Baptist Church of Hammond members. Yes. Is that is that right? So And
1: supporters from other churches, yeah.
0: So is that why it's so dangerous? Because he knows how to talk to them and say because he is uh he was one of them himself. Right. So he knows he knows how to speak their language. Like if I go up to a first Baptist Church of Hammond member and I say fundamentalism is stupid <laughs> and I think Jack Hiles was a philanderer and a con man, they're going to say, No, you're worldly. <laughs> But Voyle Glover, he's going to know how to talk to them and what to say in order to get them to pay attention to him because he knows how to break through the whole the devil is attacking the good name of Jack Hiles thing.
1: Right, because he sat under the preaching of Jack Hiles for like 20 years. There, There's a quote, <clears throat> there's a quote from the first chapter that I think will illustrate the kind of the direction he's taking with this. So I want to read that. I have edited this quote for length, but I haven't changed anything. It is kind of like the man who reports to the ship's passengers that the ship has struck a reef and is probably going to sink. His message will, no doubt, cause great despair. The captain will, of course, lose his ship and his reputation. But it was not the messenger's fault. It was the captain's fault for his mishandling of the ship. Even so, I bring a message. The message isn't so much about the ship as it is about the captain. I think the captain's put the ship off course." I'm convinced that as a result, many lives that sought to steer the same course have already been shipwrecked. I say that to continue on board, his ship will lead to shipwreck.
0: So he's speaking like in metaphor here. Yes. Like almost as if he's uh, making a sermon illustration.
1: Yeah. The whole book is not in metaphor, but again, this guy's an attorney, so he knows how to make a case to a group of people like he would to a jury. Honestly, just from reading this book, if I ever get in legal trouble, I'm going to call Boyle Glover because um, reading the way that he writes about this makes me think that he's probably really good at his job. Mm. This book was was a huge bombshell and that's why Hiles had to work so hard to keep it out of the hands of his members to begin with.
0: Does Glover present this book as an indictment purely focused on Jack Hiles or does he present it as an indictment of fundamentalism as a whole.
1: I see it as an indictment of man worship within the IFB and of some Mm -hmm. of the principles of the IFB, but not of the IFB movement as a whole. As far as I know, Boyle Glover found a much less culty IFB or similar church to go to when he left First Baptist Church of Hammond, and I I haven't asked him, but I have no reason to believe that he's not still a fundamentalist Baptist. Like I've said before several times, I believe the IFB movement is a cult, and most IFB churches are also cults. But some IFB churches, while I would never, ever, ever want to be a member there, are much milder than the IFB and may not fit the definition of a cult
0: so it's like the difference between pensacola and HAC.
1: Uh i still would call pensacola a cult
0: <laughs> okay pensacola is still a cult okay
1: it's like the difference between like um what's another like like tcu it's like the difference between tcu and a- and AJC.
0: okay but if you got like a ministry degree from pensacola and you were pastoring a church rather than if you got a ministry degree from HAC and you were church. oh
1: yeah a church. like i still would not okay. go to a church that was pastored by a pcc grad but if i absolutely had to go to one of those two i would pick the pcc grad <laughs> (laughs)
0: this is the thing that i'm expecting though because i remember i remember our episode uh i can't remember it was probably like i think episode 58 or something um it was it's all about breaking people out of cults it's how to break your friends or your loved ones out of a cult Uh, we talked about how if you just come in and tell somebody your whole worldview is wrong you're in a cult you think a bunch of dumb things and everything (laughs) that you think is like if you just go in and do that they're gonna ignore you you have to find a middle ground between doing nothing and then like browbeating them Mm -hmm. and acting superior like if you want them to listen to
1: you and to that point Glover is going to start this book by giving his credentials why he knows what he's talking about and why people should listen.
0: So does he have like his salvation story in here? Is like, I became a Christian on this date, you know?
1: I'm not, I don't think so. He does have his history with IFB churches. He talks about how he got involved with First Baptist Church of Hammond. His wife was a Moody Bible Institute graduate, which was a popular college choice for fundamentalists before Hiles Anderson existed. And they were independent Baptists. And Boyle Glover was offered a job at a steel company in Chicago area, which he and his wife thought was great because they had heard of Jack Hiles, and this was before Hiles Anderson was even a thing, but they had heard of Jack Hiles and if he took this job in the steel industry, it would give them the opportunity to attend this great church that they had heard about and be uh, members of Jack Hiles church. So they were excited about that.
0: So they came in like thinking, "Okay, this is the good thing for me." Like how a lot of people, I assume, came into First Baptist Church of Hammond. They they were already like conservative or independent Baptists, and they're like, "Oh, I heard about this guy. This guy's supposed to be really good."
1: Right um but without the they his wife had already graduated from college and he was going into the trades so it wasn't the college that pulled them it was just the fame of this ministry and this man
0: i'm sort of i'm remembering back in the the beefy boys for jesus comic do you remember that
1: i can't forget
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no when they bust into the guy's house into the the preacher's house and they see he's got a non-king james version bible and they're just like when did you get saved like (laughs) <laughs> I can imagine that if, like, if Voil Glover came out and started saying this thing about Jack Hiles, then people would be asking him, well, when did you get saved? I will, like, that's like, you know, it's like a mm-hmm. shady way to say, I don't, I'm not sure you're really a Christian. Yes. So you'd need to include that.
1: I feel like he may have mentioned, I did, I just, I did not write this down in my notes. If he mentioned exactly when he got saved, I know he mentioned when they came to the church in Hammond.
0: Okay. But his, his Christian bona, bona fides are.
1: Yes. And you can tell by the way he writes the book. Um, the language that he uses is very Christian. I did want to read you an interesting quote from the first chapter. He writes, My wife and I were enlisted in the ministry of Jack Hiles almost from the day we joined the church. Mm. So he and his wife joined in the late 60s when things were really picking up around there. He talks about Hiles always pushing higher and higher attendance. And there's a really interesting quote from Hiles that he pulled out of a sermon. And that quote is it is a sin to set a goal and not reach it. Wow. Yeah. That's
0: that's extremely manipulative. Yes. So he can set yeah, so he can set a goal for attendance and if the congregation doesn't reach it, it's a sin and he will be so like he'll be displeased with you if you like mm.
1: So he can say whatever yeah. he wants he can say, we're going to have 25,000 people in church. We're going to have 30,000 people in church. We're going to have 3,000 people saved. And then you have to fulfill that because it's a sin to set a goal and not reach it. And that's what, that's the goal that the man of God set for you.
0: So I know you, I know you didn't grow up playing sports because obvious, you know, cult. this really reminds me of some, this is some toxic sports dad energy that mm-hmm. i like that i would see yeah that like boys i knew like from the neighborhood or that were on teams that i was on they'd be subjected to this when i was a kid and i was just like uh glad that's not my dad you know yeah but, like that's the vibe i'm getting from it i
1: agree this also goes back to the spring program the other times i've mentioned this as well i don't think jack hiles ever reported that they had not reached a goal really yeah
0: huh but all the other congregations so they do like weird things to fudge their numbers. Like you were talking about, like you getting the same people saved twice or like, you know, going to, park with candy and saying, hey, you can have a piece of candy if you get saved Like to the kids or whatever. Yeah. Just as long as you can check those numbers down, put the numbers on the board.
1: Right. So on those days, did the church really have 20,000 people in, in attendance? Or did the workers inflate their numbers to try to get praise from their leader, Jack Hiles? Or did Hiles take all the final numbers and inflate them a little bit to make sure that he reached his goal?
0: We did a whole investigation, though, Um, like an investigative report. I don't know if could we call it an investig. I certainly did a lot of investigation. I wouldn't call it. I don't know what it was we did, but <laughs> he had a sermon titled duty <laughs> duty that Jack Hiles used a fabricated story of a church member committing a murder and then getting life in prison as a way to guilt his congregation into having greater and greater attendance because this guy like started not coming to church. And then he killed his wife like years later as a result of not coming to church. Right. So (laughs) <laughs> We've absolutely seen that Glover's stipulations about Hile's agenda of "you got to become more and more and more and more and more and more involved" like that—that's true. That's a hundred percent true.
1: After kind of giving his background, Glover starts to illustrate Hile's directly contradicting himself from the pulpit. He brings in first an example of the Hammond Baptist Schools. Glover's wife started working eventually as a secretary for one of the schools, and boy, did she see some stuff go down.
0: Well, we know from your experience that Hammond Baptist high school kids were treated like as the VIPs at Hiles Anderson. I think we, we talked about that in like episode nine, right? Yes,
1: yes. And now I'm starting to wonder if maybe they were treated that way because there was so much absolute bull going down at their school all the time.
0: Or maybe they were treated that way because they wanted to keep the students quiet.
1: That's, that's a possibility in my mind.
0: You get preferential treatment if you keep your mouth shut.
1: I mean, I'm sure that every HB kid just knew so much stuff. But these stories don't really involve the students. They mostly involve the administration. Glover talks about how Jack Hiles ran every detail of the Hammond Baptist school system to the point that the cheerleading staff would get together a list of potential cheerleaders and then Jack Hiles would personally pick the final cheer team.
0: Was Jack Hiles secretly an expert in cheerleading?
1: Not that I know of, but he also personally made every hiring and firing decision and approved every detail of the yearbook layout. It's all about his ability to control as much as possible.
0: He's the pastor of an IFB megachurch. He he's got sermons to write. He's got people. He's got to counsel. How does he find time to approve yearbook layouts and the cheerleading team? Like, never mind the time. Like this, this all seems like stuff that's seriously below his pay grade.
1: That's something that's addressed in the book. Hiles, really? yeah, Hiles was quoted as saying that he worked every single day. He said he was one of the busiest men in the world, but he had time for handpicking junior high cheerleaders.
0: Well, maybe that's why he was the busiest man in the world. He's like, man, I can't I can't because he
1: had to have an iron grip of control over everything. Glover also talked about his wife being made to secretly report on her boss's actions directly to Hiles and like prepare. She was instructed to like sneak into her boss's office and prepare secret reports. It illustrates very well that Hiles wasn't just a controlling dictator. But he had an entire system set up that enabled him to exhibit that kind of control.
0: So if you're working for First Baptist Church of Hammond in any capacity, you know that there is going to be somebody who is informing on you directly to Jack Hiles. Simply because you're also informing on somebody else? Man, I wonder, like, do you think that Jack Hiles even, like, read all these reports or he just wanted to make sure that these reports were being made so that people would think that he was reading so that they would know that they were being watched.
1: No, I think he absolutely did. I think he had Mm. a a level of control over people's individual lives that is maybe a little bit mind-blowing to normal people.
0: (laughs) It's just hard for me to even imagine, yeah, the normies, but...
1: It just, it means that well, Hiles yeah. just has so much power because you know that somebody's probably making secret reports about you to him and you're making secret p- reports about somebody else. But Hiles is the only person who understands how this complicated spider web of reporting works. He's like the game master in the squid games. Like He's the mm. only one who actually knows what's going on.
0: And you don't know if you can trust anybody because that person might be the person who's informing on you to Jack Hiles.
1: That's all, man. Right. But who can you trust?
0: You can't trust anybody.
1: Your pastor, your buddy, Jack Hiles.
0: This is literally how authoritarian and totalitarian states are run. I find it so ironic that the fundies hate, 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 communism so much, yet they're running their churches in ways that are not at all like dissimilar from the worst of the iron block states or the eastern block states. So
1: since you brought that up, Iron Curtain. I wasn't necessarily going to include this, but you you did bring up communism. Glover points out that Hiles lamb blasted communism from the pulpit, saying that people who work harder should make more. Government workers are lazy and spoiled, that kind of thing. But then Glover knew people who were on church staff for years and had to work extra night jobs to just barely have enough to feed their families.
0: Well, that's not dissimilar from your family's experience.
1: I mean, that's true, but that's how, like, where do you think my parents got the idea that that was acceptable? From seeing the people, like, who does Jack Hiles pat on the back? Who does Jack Hiles praise from the pulpit? People who do this. So they Mm -hmm. get it in their heads that this is what you accept when you go out into the world and become a pastor 10, 20 years later.
0: Jack Hiles is also taking, like, a bigger chunk of their paycheck than, like, Uncle Sam is. We talked about that in one of our episodes.
1: But he's also going on and on from the pulpit about how he only makes $8,000 a year, which needless to say it doesn't add up particularly well with the fur coats that he was buying for his, he was allegedly buying for his alleged mistress that means he's only reporting
0: eight thousand dollars a that year is, to the no, that means he's only
1: getting eight thousand a year from the church and that everything else is coming from other sources so after all of that glover starts speaking more to the way that the fbch first baptist church of hammond system functions. He talks about Hiles implanting mnemonics and repeated phrases in people's minds. He illustrates very well the different methods of thought control and emotion control that Hiles used.
0: I know that this is pretty much standard part, like, you know, for any really controlling groups of the mnemonics and the thought control. But if you're already a Christian fundamentalist or like at least a very conservative evangelical, how out of the ordinary is this? This is something that I've wondered, because obviously for the normies, for me, it's weird. But if he's writing this book for like a First Baptist Church of Hammond audience, is this something that he's going to say, he's going to be like, well, he's doing thought control. He's like saying, he's, you know, implanting these phrases in your head that you'll think about them and they're thought stopping phrases. And you're going to say, yeah, so what? That's how I know I don't sin in my mind. Mm -hmm. Or is this something that they're going to read and they're going to think, oh my God, I've been doing this for years. I've been getting
1: brainwashed. It's hard to know for sure, because this all happened before i was born but I'll, I'll tell you what i get from this i think that glover is trying to show ifb people codes of conduct or acting a certain way or dressing a certain way may be normal in the ifb world but the level of control and what glover calls psychological triggers and buzzwords are not normal and shouldn't be normal i think he's trying to draw a defining line like this is okay but that is not
0: well, clearly Glover thought that this wasn't okay, and he felt that it was important enough to include this in his book as like an important part.
1: So Voile Glover and his wife were, by every account, sold out to the church. He talks about how they worked themselves sick for the ministry, gave the church every spare moment that they could and every spare dollar that they could. Glover talks about how he would hear sermons that gave him pause. Like he'd hear a sermon and something just didn't seem Right. It didn't seem to match up with other things that Hiles had said, but he would talk himself out of his doubts because he wanted so badly to believe in Jack Hiles and his ministry. But his wife's work for the school system was the straw that broke the camel's back because the deeper they saw into the system, the more obvious it became that it was totally corrupt.
0: So does he describe his attempts to talk himself out of these doubts as sort of like a sunk cost fallacy? Because I can imagine that if you've devoted that much of your time and that much of your effort into something, finding out that it wasn't what you thought it was, that's something that it it's difficult and it takes a long time to be willing to cope with that.
1: He doesn't identify his feelings specifically as sunk cost fallacy, but I think from the way he writes, he was definitely experiencing that. After realizing that the system was corrupt, Glover started allowing himself to ask questions. And allowing himself to see the discrepancies in what Hiles was saying.
0: So like what sort of discrepancies? Is, there, is he just like getting names and dates wrong or is it like serious oh, no. theological problems? Yeah. No,
1: like like, like actual serious stuff. He points out very specific mm-hmm. examples. If I wanted to give you every example, I would just read the book because I honestly can't imagine doing any better than Mr. Glover did. But I'll just give you some examples instead. He gives quotes from several Hiles sermons over a span of several years where Hiles talks about his famous, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen policy. He quotes Hiles where he claims that if someone tries to gossip to him, he will just walk away. He shows several quotes about this, and then he shows several more quotes and tells stories from his own time in the church where Hiles completely went against this policy when it benefited him. So in Hiles' response to the Sumner Biblical Evangelist letter, as I think we pointed out in our episode about this, Hiles relies on word of mouth, on hearsay, or in other words, gossip. And Hiles uses that gossip to imply that Vic Nischik is either a philanderer or possibly gay or both. (laughs) Which I think we kind of ragged on in that episode. But when it concerned accusations about Hiles' son, like a few years later, it was right back to, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. I don't listen to gossip and you shouldn't either. But Hiles admitted listening to gossip in his response to the Sumner letter.
0: Also... If he says, if I hear gossip, then if someone tries to gossip to me, then I just walk away. He relies on a network of spies and informants to tell him what's going on in the, like how that, that makes no sense. How do you have like, and if I, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. And you rely entirely on spies and people informing on each other. Everything is based on it. Like. He- like, it's all hearsay. If this policy were true, then you could get away with literally anything that you wanted to do that was wrong as long as Jack Hiles didn't personally happen to be in the room with you when you did it.
1: Yeah. Clever um, makes but, that exact point in his book. But the, obviously, so that's not how this, this functions. It only functions that way when it benefits Hiles' empire.
0: It's a one-way street.
1: So another example that he points out is that Hiles preached in a sermon called The Dangers of Union in 1969 that all Bible-believing Christians should love and support each other. So specifically, he was saying that Southern Baptists and other conservative Christians should be supportive of each other and never talk badly about each other. In other words, don't ever speak negatively of somebody who believes in biblical literalism and salvation. But then, after the Sumner- biblical evangelist article came out jack hiles said from the pulpit quote robert sumner isn't even a fundamentalist he's a southern baptist now as a means of discrediting him so again hiles is playing both sides of a double standard and then gaslighting his audience by saying i've never changed i've never wavered i'm consistent but but sumner still believed in biblical literalism and salvation so hiles is going directly against what he said 20 years earlier while this out of the other side of his mouth he's yelling about i've never changed which is gaslighting
0: all bible believing christians should support each other. that is an absurd policy to begin with obviously like you can't support every christian <clears throat> can you because you'll end up just playing no true scotsman like whenever you need to denounce somebody
1: well that's exactly what it is but sense. that's also what we still see happening look at people who don't like my religious beliefs what do they say mm. She's not a true Christian, that's, that's exactly what people still do. And it's almost, it's 32 years after this book came out, but the fundamentalists, you know, they have that black and white thinking. So everything and everybody has to be good or evil at all times. And there's no concept of somebody, for example, being a good person who did a bad thing or being a good person who has a belief that you disagree with.
0: So does Glover actually come out against like black and white thinking? Or is it more to do with how it's just applied in this situation?
1: He's just coming out against Hiles specifically. Like, Hiles says one thing, and then he says the opposite, and then he gaslights and says he's never changed. So now that now that we've talked about uh, the movie Gaslight and periods, I think it's a good time to go to break. And yes. then we can come back and talk about more evidence and the witnesses that Glover is going to present.
0: I'm excited. Let's do it.
1: that group is called eden exodus tell a friend tell a family member tell your worst enemy the leaving eden podcast is a fully independent podcast and we really appreciate your support now back to the show
0: we are back sadie has been reading this book fundamental seduction you remember that song sensual seduction by snoop dogg no no? Okay. But Fundamental Seduction uh, was like the most banned book of all banned books in fundamentalism. And in the first half of the episode, we did sort of like a general overview of like, what he's saying? How he's laying the whole thing out. But now, let's get into some of the juicy stuff. The evidence. Let's do it. Sadie, why don't you take us through it? Who's your first witness? Who is who is uh, Attorney Voyle Glover calling to the stand?
1: So I think... Before we get into the witnesses, we hit one of the main points, which is, in my opinion, one of the most solid points of the book. I'll admit, reading up to this point, up to chapter six or seven, I just wasn't entirely sure where Glover was going with all of this. I wasn't sure if he was just trying to prove... That Hiles contradicted himself and gaslit people a lot, which is true, but it's not really news. Then I got to these chapters where he lays out Robert Sumner's biblical evangelist article and Hiles' open letter in response, which we talked about in the first family series, and then gave his observations on those letters.
0: Was that the, this is an untruth letter? (laughs) Where... You lied about the door. Yes,
1: that's the one. Everything so far in Fundamental Seduction has been setting up for this. And honestly, it's kind of beautiful how Glover set this up. In Hiles' response letter to Sumner, there are a couple of things that just don't match up. And some of them we noticed with the information that we had in those episodes, and some of them we didn't. Number one, Hiles implies that Nischik has been inappropriate with young women and may have asked another woman to run away with him uh, after his wife stopped not only stopped sleeping with him, but also stopped being like speaking to him or having any semblance of relationship with him because she was allegedly involved with Jack Hiles. Hiles states in his letter that he got this information about Nischeck being inappropriate with other people from an unnamed woman who had babysat for the Nischeck family. So Hiles has spent all of these years saying, "I don't listen to gossip if I didn't see it, it didn't happen," but then he prints this gossip that he did not see happen in one of his most widely distributed works for the whole world to see
0: this claim he asked another woman to run away with him all of jack hiles's claims are like hella soap opera you ever notice that they're like extremely dramatic and like Mm -hmm. the most scandalous thing that you can think of uh like
1: Like a tv show that paul sand might be (laughs) in
0: think paul sand did soap operas but uh (laughs) good one man
1: i'm funny occasionally
0: occasionally
1: and every once in a while i catch it on a microphone
0: (laughs) selling yourself short there if i recall correctly though um the original biblical evangelist letter wasn't It wasn't written by Victor Nischik. It was written by his daughter, right? She was the one that was making the claim. So why is Hiles going after Nischik's credibility here?
1: So the biblical evangelist article was written by... Robert Sumner, with help from Vic Nistrick, but it included a preface by Judy Nistrick Johnson, who is Vic and Jenny's daughter. So after those allegations came out, uh, Jack Hiles' response was largely focused on discrediting this man. By And it was kind of a throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks strategy. He just said anything that he could do to try to destroy this man's credibility. Part of this is that Hiles talks about how Vic Nischik treated Jenny so badly that they were on the verge of divorce and that all the time that Hiles spent with the couple separately and together was just Hiles being a good pastor and trying to prevent a divorce hiles says that the eleven thousand dollars that he gave to have the separate bedroom built for vic was part of this process trying to keep the marriage together and the really great point that glover makes about this is that hiles knew so if we take hiles word on this entire situation if everything that hiles said is true jack hiles knew that this couple was living in a sham marriage he knew that in strictly ifb terms jenny was living in rebellion to her husband hiles claimed in his own words that he knew that Vic was treating jenny terribly and he said this in the divorce deposition so why would a fundamentalist preacher like jack hiles allow a woman who was living in rebellion to her husband be on his staff any good fundamentalist man would send that woman home to make her family correct and make her family right before working on church staff And why would a fundamentalist preacher like Hiles allow a man who was treating his wife so terribly, who at times he had accused of being a philanderer or even being gay? Why would a fundamentalist preacher like Jack Hiles allow that man to be his deacon, his song leader and his personal friend?
0: Is there an argument to be made here? Um, And this is just me uh, being not fully as in engulfed in fundamentalism as you have been, um, in your life. Uh, but is there an argument to be made very cynically, um, might I add that maybe Jack Hiles was blinded by how much he cared for Victor and how much he valued his friendship with Victor, um, and hoped to rehabilitate him and was therefore willing to overlook Victor's misdeeds.
1: No, because Hiles doesn't just admit to being aware ...of these alleged misdeeds, but he admits to being somewhat involved in the situation. He was called to solve these marital difficulties. He was involved in Vic and Jenny's finances, and he admits to having knowledge of Vic's alleged infidelity, which I don't think happened. So if Jack Hiles admits to knowing these things and we all it's a matter of fact that Nischik had a high position in the church the outcome is one of two things the number one outcome is Hiles had a known abusive husband and or a known rebellious wife on his church staff and on his deacon board which is a violation of the fundamentalist way of doing things or number 2 Hiles is making false accusations about Vic Nischik, which is obviously a violation of the fundamentalist ways of doing things. Mm. It's one or the other. Hiles is in violation of his own principle. One of these things has to be true. And if either one is true, Hiles is in violation of his own principles and his own teaching. And there's so many things you've picked up on from this entire show. You've picked up on so much of the lingo and the way that people think. But I'm not sure that you can totally grasp what a big deal this is just because you haven't been in it. You know how... Biblical literalism depends on the literal account of the creation because, as Kent Hovind would say, if you can't believe the first part of the Bible literally, you can't believe any of it literally. It's the same thing with Jack Hiles. He set himself up over years as, you can believe everything I say. He repeated over and over again in his sermons, trust me, trust me, trust me. So the same concept applies. If Glover can show that Hiles is lying or that he can't be trusted about this one matter, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. And I really think that for someone who was a member of the church at the time, if you believed even 10% of what was in this book, you would end up leaving First Baptist Church of Hammond. I don't think there's any middle ground. If any of this is true, there's no redemption for Jack Hiles or for the church as long as he leads it. So that's why Hiles had to keep people from reading it at all, because I think anyone who read it would be almost 100% certain to walk away.
0: Yeah, let's get into this. So Jack Hiles, we know he's lying about something to do with with the Nishik affair because of what you said. That so, Either way, whatever right. is one going on. One way yeah. or
1: the other, he is lying about something. We just don't know which one.
0: Yeah. So what's what does Glover bring up next? What's Who's the next witness?
1: He has three witnesses that he wants to bring. The first one is baby Brent Stevens and the people like Paul Celino who fought for him. This section is going to talk about the. He. um, Voyal Glover writes from the perspective of Brent Stevens. He wrote like almost a poem from his perspective. It is heartbreaking. I am not going to read it because I read it and bawled for like an entire day. This section is going to talk about the death of a very young child and physical evidence of child abuse please be aware. Um, As always, we're going to only include the details that we feel like need to be included. But this one, um, this one got to me and y'all know that not a lot of things get to me. So please use caution.
0: So a brief refresher. Brent Stevens was the child of a woman that Jack Hiles son David Hiles had an affair with when he was the pastor of Miller Road Baptist Church in Texas.
1: Right. And Brent is legally on paper, the child of her husband at the time, David Stevens. But. And that's all we know.
0: But yeah. So after David Hiles was caught having many affairs with more than a dozen women, he and Brenda moved back to First Baptist Church of Hammond with baby Brent. Brent soon died under extremely mysterious circumstances, and David Hiles worked to have the body embalmed almost immediately, allegedly in order to destroy evidence of foul play. That's what we think. That's our Right,
1: theory. and those allegations are coming from us. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and other people as well. Oh,
1: yeah, We're not a the only ton one ton of other people. this. Yeah. But, uh, but I would like, I would like to note in this case, I personally allege that David Hiles, um, either negligently or purposely killed that baby. Yeah. So that's kind of what we knew before I read this book. And we get a lot of new information in this book. The first thing I know we've talked before about Brent being admitted to the hospital with many broken bones in different stages of healing that had not been treated at some point before his death. We get dates, we get pictures in this book. So now we know that this incident happened in June of 1985. Brent was just a year old. And the only picture that I've ever seen of Brent is from this situation when he was in the hospital for treatment of a broken leg. So Brent was taken to the hospital with an extremely swollen leg. They found out that this leg was currently broken, but they also discovered multiple other breaks in various stages of healing. Paul Cialino was the investigator on Brent's case. But what I didn't know before reading this book is that Cialino knew Brent while he was still alive. The picture of Brent in the hospital was actually taken by Cialino. So Brent was admitted to the hospital, and what he had at that time was a healed tibia fracture, healed fractures of the 7th and 8th ribs on his right side, and a fractured ulna, which would have occurred about two weeks before the leg break which finally got his parents to take him to the hospital.
0: The hospital, like they notified police or CPS that they had a child, like checked in with horrible injuries and in, in different stages of healing. Yes. Like with Elsa Garcia. Mm hmm. Yeah, so that's that's how Cialino got involved with Stevens to begin with.
1: Yes, and this is new to me. I always thought that Cialino was a homicide investigator who was called in after Brent died, but that's not the case. He was a CPS officer who was called in June 1985, five months before Brent died because of the clear signs of horrific ongoing abuse. Paul Cialino worked with CPS children and families to have Brent sent back to his father in texas with his brother andrew so brent and andrew were shipped back to texas for several weeks brent was shipped back to texas in a body cast at one year old which just breaks me it just, it just fucking breaks me um Ugh, about i've got
0: a one year old My, i
1: almost. have an almost one year old she does not sit still for two seconds
0: in a body cast. all
1: of my pictures of her are blurry because she is 100% of the time, if she's awake, she's on the move. And thinking about a toddler in a body cast, not just like being in that kind of pain, but having to travel across the country that way, just like, just as a mom, just breaks me. Um, But David Stevens, Brenda's ex-husband and Andrew and probably Brent's father, sent the boys back to Indiana just a few weeks later. And they were delivered to the cps offices and brenda and dave petitioned to have them given back to them paul celino really tried to fight this he insisted that this was going to end in a death But CPS didn't listen to him and gave the children back to Dave and Brenda. Cialino apparently did multiple surprise visits to the Hiles Stevens' home, looking for any excuse to get the kids out of the house because he was convinced that this was going to end badly. But before he was able to find a reason to get them out, he got the call that Brent was dead at 17 months old.
0: Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay, so when Brent died, David Hiles knew that there were eyes on them and yeah, and had been there was a case that was being built against them. And if there was any evidence of foul play, then he would likely be looking at an indictment and he would probably be looking at like murder or manslaughter.
1: Yes, and this was about to head, this is like almost a head-to-head battle between Paul Cialino and David Hiles. Uh, Cialino says that he argued with the coroner's office for hours on the day that Brent died, begged them to use a forensic pathologist for the autopsy and to check for Actifed because he had found an empty bottle of Actifed at the house, which we knew before this book, and Cialino knew that an overdose of Actifed could be legal uh, lethal. But the coroner's office just didn't listen to him for whatever reason. They did a routine autopsy and they chalked the cause of death up to SIDS and released the body to Dave and Brenda.
0: Could they take blood and tissue samples and then send them somewhere else to have the forensic analysis done?
1: They could have, but David and Brenda had the body embalmed uh, immediately and then had a wake in Indiana and then sent the body back to Texas for burial with David Stevens. Uh, and David Stevens was going to have the burial done in Texas. So Cialino got a hold of Mr. Stevens in Texas and he talked him into having a forensic autopsy done in Texas. But because Brent was embalmed in Indiana, there was no way to test for Actifed because the evidence would have been in his blood, which is removed in the embalming process. And that evidence had been destroyed.
0: So was there any evidence that wasn't destroyed?
1: We do have the details of the forensic pathologist report who did the, the pathologist who did the autopsy in Texas. According to that, it's Dr. Lawrence Ariano. According to Dr. Ariano, Brent had an ear infection and a sore throat at the time of death, um, but nothing that would have caused a death. It would make sense that somebody who was responsible would have given him a non-lethal dose of appropriate medication, but that wouldn't have caused his death. The pathologist confirmed the multiple fractures and confirmed that they had occurred over a period of time. Here is the kind of summary quote from Dr. Ariano. In the face of the unexplained and inadequately explained bones in a year-old infant, the cause of death should not be ascribed to the minor level of infection consistent with the recent upper respiratory tract infection, because lethal injuries can be inflicted on a child of this age without leaving marks, and this child was injured in a pattern consistent with deliberate infliction by an adult. His cause of death is best left undetermined.
0: So how rare is SIDS for an eighteen, for a 17-month-old? Because th- that's got to be one in a 1000000 mm-hmm when you had your baby, you were like freaking out for the first f- like four or five months. And then you're like, okay, once she gets to however old, like it's so low, it's almost negative. Yeah. Like
1: at four months, I got a little bit of relief. And then at six months, I started doing a lot better.
0: So 17, 17 months, that isn't even an infant anymore. So it like, that's a, that's like a toddler almost. Yeah. Sid's like a SIDS diagnosis here. That doesn't make any sense. That's so unlikely, especially with broken bones all over. like
1: The odds on. after 12 months are extremely low. We do know that the baby was overdressed. He was wearing too many layers and the heat in the house was turned way up, and we do know that there were blankets around his head and face. And those are all risk factors for SIDS, but it's really something that we worry a lot more about before 12 months old. However, the the new details that came out from that I knew to me from Fundamental Seduction are that Brent had vomited a green substance. And that's not a said that's not Sid's. Um, this sounds a lot like a poisoning death to me, which does make my messed up true crime mind wonder if Actifed was the only thing in his system.
0: He was wrapped up in like all of these blankets and the temperatures were turned way up. Yes. So what I'll I'll tell you what that sounds to me because you're saying it's a risk factor for SIDS. I think that that was done after he died because higher temperature means that chemical reactions and therefore decomposition is going to occur more quickly, making Hmm. it more like, yeah, so it'll make it so, A, the autopsy reports are more likely to be inconclusive. B, it's going to make it more difficult for the coroner to determine a time of death.
2: Hmm.
0: If they make the temperature as high as possible in whatever way doesn't arouse suspicion or is like obvi- not obviously destroying the evidence, they o- like they overdress him and make the house as warm as possible just to try to like and I guess leave him for I guess however many hours or whatever hmm. they think is adequate enough to make things fuzzy on the coroner's end.
1: So I have I have a, a theory that's almost that but not quite. I want to preface this by saying that I absolutely believe that the death of Brent Stevens should have been ruled a homicide, and I absolutely believe that Dave and Brenda should have both done jail time for it.
0: Dave should still be in jail for that and other things.
1: He should be in jail for so many things.
0: Hashtag arrest David Hiles.
1: However, I, I tend to think that this is purposeful abuse but accidental death because I don't know what motive david hiles would have had to kill the baby i'm just thinking if he wanted to kill the baby because he didn't like taking care of the baby or baby made him mad or whatever why wouldn't he have had the same kind of violence toward brenda's other son andrew or why if he was just trying to get rid of a baby that was an annoyance to him why did he petition to have the baby back in his custody instead of just letting him go to children and family so what i tend to think happened is that that maybe this is just a case of like abuse gone too far. See
0: because th- we know that this guy, he's a known sociopath and child rapist. like th- he, this is not a good man that we're talking about here. He's got this annoying kid that maybe it's his, maybe it isn't I don't know. He beats the kid, kid gets broken bones, kids in pain. What does he do? He beats the kid some more because it won't shut up, right? Like right What do you yeah, what do you do when it won't shut up? It's 17 months old. You can't do that for the next 16 years or whatever. You're like, I can't raise this kid for the next 16 years. It's annoying. I hate it. Kids got to go.
1: See, my take is slightly different because I think he was trying to punish the kid or shut the kid up. I don't think he meant to kill him. I think he meant to give the kid enough medicine to make him sleep for like 12 or 14 hours.
0: Actifed's like an amphetamine. That's not going to make him sleep. That's going to make him like...
1: Well, so, okay, so here's the thing though. There's a trend that like parents are doing, and then other parents are warning people about doing it because it's freaking dangerous. But people will make a baby bottle and put meta, baby, like baby Tylenol in it, and then thicken it with baby cereal. And if you give that to your baby, it'll make your baby sleep for like 12 hours, but babies can choke on it and die, which is why it's extremely dangerous to. Give that to your kid. I think David Hiles was trying to do that. I think he was trying to just like give him a mild OD that he would sleep off, but get like 12 hours of sleep out of this kid. But then the kid died. So then Dave went in, put the blankets around his head, turned the heat up to make it look like he died of SIDS when he actually just accidentally killed him out of negligence. That's wow. that's what hmm. I think. It's still that homicide.
0: Makes a lot of sense. Like, Don't yeah. get me wrong.
1: It's still homicide. If that's what happened, and I can't prove that it is, but I think that it is, he should still be in jail. But I think if he actually meant to kill him, he would have set the house on fire or done something that he couldn't possibly have been blamed for. I think Dave Hiles is too sneaky and too sly to roll the dice on. Maybe they won't do a full autopsy. Like, I don't think he would have set himself up for risk like that if he purposely killed the kid. I think he I think he killed the kid through negligent homicide and then tried to cover his tracks and effectively did and got away with it.
0: To me, though, David Hiles hasn't exactly been sneaky with any of the other crimes he's committed, though. That's why like I, I think he's just very ham fisted. By the way, his other crimes include raping multiple children, keeping images of said abuse, carrying on affairs with more than a dozen women. Uh, keeping images of all of this stuff in a briefcase and then getting caught and throwing the briefcase in the dumpster behind the church where anyone could find it, including the 12-year-old son of a janitor who found it. This is a man who, in the year of our Lord 2020, got caught catfishing Filipino girls over Facebook. (laughs) This man is not subtle or sneaky. He is just so used to not being held accountable for anything that he has done that he doesn't feel like he has to hide anything that he does. Like he literally watched his father do all this shit out in the open and say, I'm a man of God and people were fine with it and just pretended that it didn't happen. I don't know. Actually, I think your takes probably better.
1: Yeah, but I don't hate your take.
0: I mean, they both kind of make sense. We're we're going very true crime on this. Who who knows if, if you've got a theory sent to us. I mean,
1: this is like the truest true crime. Yeah.
0: Cause it really happened. And he's still not in jail.
1: Yeah. All I want to say about to to close this up is that I sat and looked at the picture of that poor baby. I mean, this kid would have been older than us, like even older than my husband if he had lived, but I just sat and cried and cried and cried. It just sucked for me so bad. It's horrible. I really want to go. I really, um, just on a on a totally personal note, I really want to go to Brent's grave and and leave some flowers. So at some point when I do, <laughs> at some point when I do the Leaving Eden tour to protest Jack Scott getting out of jail and like four other things I need to do for this podcast, I'm gonna go to Texas and see if I can do that. So let's move on to the second witness. Um, the second witness is Paula Hiles Polanco, who is David's first wife. And I'm sorry if this is this is kind of whiplashy after the death of a child but her testimony is just full of bombshells as well wow okay uh this is just like a totally different kind of awful so we've heard bits and pieces of this before but paula says that she had six months of premarital counseling with jack hiles that he asked her extremely inappropriate questions like inappropriate for a pastor inappropriate for a father-in-law just not necessary
0: man what what is with this like premarital counseling thing
1: this, this is, is something that nuts. he did to to make sure that his sex addict son would be well taken care of.
0: I think that David Heil calling David Heil as a sex addict uh, gives a bad name to sex addicts.
1: <laughs> that like, is one hundred percent true.
0: Sex addiction, I mean, like bad behavior when it, with regards to sex and and acting out with that's that's a real problem that a lot of people have, and a lot of people have that problem, and they're not out here. F- uh raping children and trying to get like 13 year old girls to pose for them and like
1: yeah that's the thing like yeah. i really hate how um sex addiction and porn addiction like get used like those things are real they're very rare they're they're not as common as people would lead you to believe and i hate how bad men use them for excuses to do bad things uh speaking of lingerie though so jack hiles gave paula money to go pick out her wedding night lingerie and then he made her come back that's nice of him well then he made her come back and show him what she bought thankfully he did not make her model it but but like hold it up and show him but it wasn't sexy enough for him so he made her go back and try again so he approved and controlled her wedding night lingerie Yeah, this is
0: gross. This is so gross. Ew. I'm just trying to say you are a Christian and you have decided that you don't want to have sex until you are married, which is an excellent decision. If you decide to make that decision, we support you.
1: I support people doing so responsibly. You should, if there's any way that you can do something like living with the person within your standards and rules, that's a better idea. Even if you even if you don't want to actually have sex until you're married, that's fine. But if if there's any way that you can like mimic living with them just to like know, because if you're, if you're not ever like functionally alone with this person, you do not know who they are. Yeah. It's not, it's a safety thing. But if there's a way that you can fulfill that safety need and not have sex, then more power to you. So I'm sorry. I jumped on your opinion with my opinion.
0: No, that's, I mean, that's a extremely valid thing to say. Um, I definitely agree with you. But, but say you, you decide that you don't want to have sex until you get married um and then you do get married and you go into the bedroom with your new husband and there you are and he's looking right at you and he says oh my god you look so hot in that lingerie it's so sexy and you look back and you say thanks your daddy picked it out for
1: me this is mega barf uh
0: I mean, that kills the mood, though, don't you? Like, yes, I mean, I would imagine. Up, like, I mean, maybe if you're like, if you're trying to play a prank, like if you're tr- like, listen, if, if you've chosen, you're like, if you're like a pranky dad, you know, and you're like, okay, look, you're gonna go into the room, like that's what you're gonna say, and you're just trying to like, you know, create like a six more weeks of winter situation, or so to speak. Listen, I
1: am, I am <laughs> keep a the
0: groundhog back in the. <laughs> make sure that he doesn't pop his head out uh
1: i'm like i'm I'm a i'm a pranky person in general and this is this is way beyond the pale
0: put on the music with like the 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 elevator music with the the ocean sounds in the background
1: we'll get to that in a couple more weeks. we'll get to that so apparently davy boy wasn't too impressed with the jack hiles sex education and lingerie design course that he had put Paula through because, according to Paula, they had sex on their wedding night, but he spent the rest of the honeymoon making calls from the hotel lobby and watching violent porn when he thought she was asleep.
0: Ew. That's extremely disappointing.
1: Dave Hiles is a disappointing man.
0: Disappointing is putting it likely.
1: Uh, I mean, we can use multiple adjectives about the same person.
2: Yeah.
0: (sighs) God, I'm trying to imagine you get married to a dude and like like, this is it. This is like, I, I'm going to do this. You do it once and then you're like.
1: And this is heartbreaking, too, because she talks over and over in her testimony about how she was in love with this guy. It's awful. Ugh. So she she talks about an incident later after their honeymoon. Um, there was a girl in the youth group who, in the teenage girl's words, was having an affair with Dave. Of course, we know that that's not accurate language because minors can't consent. But that's how this teenager was framing it. Apparently, this girl beat up Cindy Hiles at a youth camp.
0: That's terrible. That's disgusting.
1: It is. And and that may seem like a fairly irrelevant detail, but it really stood out to me because I've always wondered how these things affected Cindy because she was the youngest Hiles child. And it, it always makes me wonder how this affected the person she grew up to be. So I did find that very interesting.
0: She's the one you knew. Yeah. She was your teacher <clears throat> at Hiles Anderson.
1: Yeah, she was my teacher. She was a family friend.
0: Like, did you ever get any incl- like yeah. from when you would?
1: There was always a lot of pain mm. behind her eyes. Mm. There was there yeah. was always like, if I would go through something bad, like I didn't know all of this stuff about the scandals, but Cindy Hiles Skop, uh, which was her former name and it's not her name anymore.
0: Right, because her uh, ex-husband Jack Skop uh, got in trouble for basically the exact same thing yeah and
1: she she, uh left him because go her she got some agency and left him and now she's remarried to a guy who seems good and i hope they're happy and i hope she just like doesn't like i i very much do not agree with her like theologically or where she has landed philosophically but i honestly don't care i just want her to be happy she's got like she's gone through enough as long as she's not actively harming other people I, i don't care what she thinks or believes.
0: Breaking out of an abusive relationship is not that different from breaking out of a cult, and she
1: had to do both at the same time.
0: Yes, yeah, she, yeah. Mm, that's rough stuff. You can't expect somebody to be like fully, you know, a normie. I
1: hope she keeps learning and growing. I hope her husband now treats her like an absolute queen. Like beliefs that she still has that I believe are toxic. Um, I just I hope she grows out of them. But I'm 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 not here to rag on Cindy because that poor woman has been through enough. When I would go through something bad as a teenager, I didn't know that Cindy would have been a young adult when all of these things were coming out about her father and her family and her brother. I knew that there was a scandal, but I did not know a single detail about it. All I knew is like, oh, the devil was attacking Brother Hiles. But I knew that the devil had attacked her father. So when I would go through something bad as a kid, it would get related to this. Like, well, you know, your hero, Cindy, has been through a lot of bad things too, and you should be like her and have a good attitude and go on to serve God.
0: Wow.
1: So, but that's... like, but I've always wondered kind of what the details of this were like for her. And this story is one of the few details that we have.
0: I mean, if you had known those details, would have you just like been like, hell the f- no? I mean, that's hard to.
1: I mean, you're talking about me as like a young teenager.
0: Right, serving the Lord's the only thing you know. Yeah,
1: and these details wouldn't have really meant anything to me because you could have said said somebody had an affair, but I didn't know what sex was. So I wouldn't, like, if you say somebody has an affair, I know that's bad, but I don't know what that means. But anyway, let's move on with Paula's testimony because apparently David Hiles, according to Paula, was not just raping teenage girls in the youth group. He was also having affairs with several adult women in the church as well. Paula knew that things were going on because he was calling girlfriends um, on their honeymoon but so she always knew that something was up but she wouldn't necessarily know who in the church he was having an affair with one of these affairs she found out about from someone in the church in a public place and she reacted when she reacted she said well if i had known this i never would have married him which fair but she said it just a little bit too loudly and somebody overheard and snitched on her to jack hiles and he called paula into his office and just chewed her out he said if your marriage fail if your marriage falls apart it will be your fault not his because you've got such a big mouth and you don't know when to shut up you shut your mouth
0: so jack Hyles was well aware of this I don't even know why I'm asking that question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And this is happening before, importantly, this is happening before David was sent to Miller Road Baptist Church. There's also a story in this book, not in Paula's testimony, but in a different part of the book, about a parent of a student in the junior high school who confronted Hiles because one of David's alleged affairs worked at the junior high school. This parent was basically asking Hiles, if my daughter did what your son is accused of, she could be suspended or expelled. Why aren't you firing the person who works for you that is doing this thing? Who's my daughter's Mm. like my, she works in my daughter's school.
0: So at this point, like, I mean, it's basically like common knowledge that David Hiles is a creep and a pervert and you do not trust him under any circumstances and you do not leave any female person alone with him. Yeah. At all, like ever.
1: Yeah, and I think Paula's story shows just how common knowledge this was because Paula said that four different women knew about this particular affair and then one of them finally told her about it and then that's what she was responding to when she was overheard.
0: But at this, like, telling Paula, though, I mean, I... I don't want to sound crass if I'm saying like telling Paula that David's having an affair at this point. And I mean, I'm sure that's got to hurt, but it's got to be like telling a Detroit Lions fan that they're not going to win the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah. It, like her reaction was like, oh, it's another one. Yeah. Like, and, and her reaction is more embarrassment that other people are getting to know about these affairs because she knows he's sleeping around. He, she knows he's having multiple affairs. But her reaction when she finds out about another one, it's like, oh, it's another one. It's another affair. And it's more people that know. It's adding to her, like her humiliation.
0: and Because uh, all the teaching is if your husband has an affair, then it's your fault. You're not a good wife.
1: Right, so it's more people are perceiving that I'm a bad wife. Like, that's kind of her. uh, Yeah, it's awful. Um, Once uh, Paula heard David on the phone with another woman, he was saying, Now I'm going to go upstairs and have sex with my wife, but I'll be thinking about you. And Paula was, like, on the other line, listening secretly on the other receiver for the phone. And David realized that she had picked up the other receiver and heard what he said. And in her words, she said... If I ever got raped, I got raped that night. I mean, he threw me around, and well, it was awful.
0: This is so, this is one of the things we've talked about in our uh, with IFB. In we talked about this in our marriage episode, how commonplace marital rape is because you're like just not allowed to say no
1: that's true but there is a big difference between you're not allowed to say no so just go along with it even if you're not in the mood and being brutally raped and thrown around both of those things are bad and wrong but this is a different level of evil that paula is talking about here like i think the first kind like you're not allowed to say no so go along with it even if you very much do not want to have sex that is very common in the ifb actually being for like physically forced. To have sex that you do not want is a lot less common it does so happen still, i'm
0: sure it happens
1: oh yeah all the time yeah but like one of those things is way more common than the other and like those are both evil but they're oh. different levels of evil paula tells us about at least four different women that david was having affairs with before they moved to texas one of them confessed to her directly On another occasion, she recalls venting to a close friend about her husband being unfaithful with multiple women. She didn't know that the friend that she was venting to was also sleeping with him and possibly had a child by him.
0: And she's got to stay married to him because they don't believe in divorce. They can't do they don't really do divorce. Right. And
1: also it would, quote unquote, ruin his ministry. This is at this point. David is still like the anointed one to take over Jack Hyle's ministry. So after they got to Texas, they only had one car and David would leave the area on Monday with the car and not leave her any money for groceries and just be gone for a week. So he would just leave Paula with two small children and no resources. So even if she had been ready to leave him at that point in Texas, she would have had very little opportunity to do so.
0: And when she gets to a new church, she can't exactly just get up and say in front of everybody, my husband is a, ba- is a bad man. He will put his d- in anything that moves. Keep your children away from him. Keep your wives away from him. Do not be in a room alone with him because he is violent. Like, she can't say that.
1: Right. She can't say that because Jack Hiles had recruited her to kind of be on his. Jack Hiles treated her like David's manager. Like, she was supposed Mm -hmm. to help him manage his son's issues and problems. When he would get in trouble, Jack Hiles would call her on the phone. Like, so what are we going to do next? What's the plan?
0: And she can't just be like, I'm going to divorce the out of this guy. He's a scumbag. You're on your own. Right.
1: Um, because he's like, he, she has no resources to do so. Paula goes on to just tell horrible stories. I won't go into detail, but like, violence, um, shaking a crying baby, which I think is relevant. This is important. Uh, she says that David beat one of their two children as an infant and bruised her legs badly. And she asked him about it and he said that he needed to break her will. So that does inform my mm. Brent theory. Um, eventually, there was the briefcase incident, which we've talked about before, but we get some further details on in this book. Paula went to Dave's office at the church where she found all kinds of sexual paraphernalia, lists of sex workers, magazines, and a briefcase of sexual photos of women in the church. She confronts him about it during a church service because she's kind of a fucking badass. Mm. He beats her up during a church service, like in a side room. He, she calls what? him off stage during church he goes in a side room argues with his wife beats his wife and then goes back on the platform and preaches and then later he brags to her about how good of a sermon he preached after beating her up what the so at this point, she's this man's a psycho. Yeah. Th- he is way more psycho. I think than we knew before at this point, she's done. She goes to stay with her family for a little bit. Jack Hiles tries and tries to reconcile them. We have the timeline on that in the Dave piles episode. I think the title is sense of the father. It doesn't work. Eventually after David has threatened her with guns multiple times. What? Yeah. Uh, she is. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about this either. Uh, this is, this is also new. Um, Paula escapes with the help of church members and $100 weekly hush money checks from Jack Hiles. The hush money comes from First Baptist Church of Hammond accounts, not Hiles' account. So Jack Hiles was using church money, specifically the supplemental account from First Baptist Church of Hammond, to pay his son's child support, or pay his son's soon-to-be ex-wife to be quiet about the fact that his son isn't paying his child support. In Fundamental Seduction, there are printed check stubs showing this, If we can get Boyle Glover to come on the podcast, one of the questions I want to ask him is how he obtained these check stubs.
0: This is incredible. I don't like this is that's got to be illegal. And you have to realize that, like, I'm skimming.
1: like, Like, I am I'm pulling out the details that are relevant to our coverage of these things. And I'm skipping like half of what's in here. So Paula's testimony primarily, it goes to show that Jack Hiles knew about David's sins, issues, crimes, whatever terminology you use, and that he allowed him to just go on finding more marriages to help ruin and more people to victimize. And that's important to the case that Glover is building, but there are also lots of little details in there that are just plain interesting to those of us who are following this case.
0: I remember... Back when we recorded the first Family Fundamentalism series, you were still like having difficulty seeing Jack House as like a bad man or an evil man. You thought he was like misguided but principled, and like I guess now all that's just completely out the window.
1: I think it's a good thing that it turned out that way because I don't share every detail of my life with our listeners, but I really, as far as deconstruction and cult stuff i really am very open so it's almost like our listeners get to be in my mind and learn with me
0: well, the podcast is like us doing this show is like, not like you setting like a, a, a tent pole and saying, this is where I've gotten to, we're doing a documentary and this is how I got to here. Like, it's an ongoing process for you. So like when we talk about something new, it's just like, right.
1: I like, there are very few things of- like I, I feel like I've arrived on. Um, It's more like, this is the journey. And if you want to take it with me.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's really important because when we first recorded that episode, you know, y- you were like saying, I, you know, I think that that Jack House was just misguided and that he, you know, he got in too deep and that, he, you know, he was originally like, OK, and then he got corrupted. But like,
1: and like it's it's po- it was, even at that time, it was possible for me to see him as a liar. But I was seeing him as like, oh, he's lying to protect himself. Like, that's something that I think all of us do. And this is it's now shifting to like, oh, no, he's a pathological liar. He controlled people on purpose. And that's something that I wasn't ready to accept a year and a half ago. So the third witness, ready to finish that up?
0: Yeah, Good. let's do it.
1: So the third witness is Judy Nischik Johnson, which feels kind of satisfyingly full circle because her letter to Jack Hiles, That was printed in the Sumner article came up at the very beginning of all this.
0: Judy is the daughter of of Victor and Jenny Nischick.
1: Yes. She is one of their two children. So Judy talks about her situation growing up, being maybe six years old when her parents stopped talking, stopped being in the same room, dropped all semblance of having a relationship at home. And her father... Just sudden?
0: Yeah, it was very sudden,
1: according to her. And her father started sleeping in the basement. And based on her age, this would line up with the 1971 date, which is when this chick said that he was sent down to the basement. Judy says that Jack Hiles was involved in every aspect of her life. Her parents lived by a schedule so that they would never have to communicate much and almost never have to be in the same room. She said that to deviate from that schedule, she had to ask her mom and then her mom had to ask Jack Hiles. He literally had that much control over the entire family.
0: So like control over meals? And, like, what time she goes to school and what time she goes to bed?
1: Yeah, he would have at least known all of that. What? She gives she gives the example of having a sleepover as a young teenager. And then the next morning, Jack Hiles is calling her up on the phone. Judy, this is Brother Hiles. I understand you stayed up a little late last night. He just wanted to know what she was up to and exert. Like, he wanted to flex. He was flexing, like, that level of knowledge and control over her life.
0: Did she think did she get that this was weird at the time to have your her pastor in, like that involved in every aspect of her life cuz she's 6?
1: Oh, this is late this is later when she was a teen the, the sleepover thing happened when she was a teenager.
0: That's also like super creepy. This
1: is this to, is very creepy. Yeah. <clears throat> and also when she was a teenager, her youth pastor was Dave Hiles, Aww. which we're going to talk about. This was not normal for any family in the church other than the Nischik family. The way she talks about it, she always knew something was up. She heard her mom on the phone with Hiles all the time, even from the time she was a little kid, saying that she loved him and things like that. Her mom took her and her brother to Hiles' office every Wednesday night for a meeting. And Hiles, literally, when she became a teenager, he—so in church, the, the Nischik children would sit between— their parents in church so their parents wouldn't have to sit together because they hated each other so much that they could not sit together for the duration of a church service
0: why did jenny hate victor just because that is
1: totally unclear because according to victor and i i do believe it because it matches everybody else's story about this situation he never hated her it was all on her end just one day she up and hated him But Hiles literally rearranged the schedule of teen choir because if the kids were both in teen choir, there wouldn't be anybody to sit between their parents and their parents would have to look married for like an hour on a Wednesday night. Wow. So Hiles rearranged the entire church schedule to move teen choir so that her parents wouldn't have to sit together in one church service a week. So she knew that this was extremely unusual and she knew this was not what happened in other people's families But this is just the way her family lived. So I think you could say it was normal. It was her normal.
0: Did she ever mention this to people? Like, Jack Hiles called to see how my sleepover went? No,
1: never. So she's too young to understand the depth of what is going on over her head. But she knows that she is never supposed to talk about anything concerning her mom or Hiles or the two of them together. She does testify about the door between her mom's office and Jack Hiles' office. She says that she saw it and used it. And all the things that we hear from everybody else.
0: That's a door that allegedly did not exist, according to Jack Hiles. Which
1: absolutely existed. Yeah. One really heartbreaking thing. Glover asks her in this interview how her dad spoke of her mom when they were not together. She says that her dad prayed for her mother when the family prayed before meals. He always spoke kindly of her and she never once heard him trash talk her mother. On the other hand, her mother just seemed to seethe with hatred all of the time. If Jenny and Vic passed each other in the hallway at the house, Jenny would stop and turn her head to look at the wall rather than even look at him in the hallway of their house.
0: That's heartbreaking. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Man, I mean, I, like, I've been in a situation where it hasn't been somebody I've been in a relationship with, but it's been somebody that I've lived with. Their presence is just a, a they just exude absolute hatred for the people that they are around. And it's such an, like, it's not just an uncomfortable situation. It's just like a cloud. It's a looming cloud. I can't imagine, like, if it was somebody who I was married to. God.
1: Yeah. That's. So other examples that Judy gives uh, when Vic Nischik was in the hospital, Johnny Colston took the kids to visit him and then Colston brought him home from the hospital. And this is intriguing to me because I've always wondered what he did or didn't know. And now he's dead. But we know that the Colstons were the friends that recruited the mystics to First Baptist Church of Hammond.
0: I wonder if it's even possible, though, like because we know that the Colstons were in, in Jack Hiles inner circle. If it's possible to be that close to Jack Hiles and be in his inner circle and not know that at least like not know something that is completely damning. Like Jenny and Jack's relationship must like have been a completely open secret at this point. But people denying it have just like been under the belief that uh, this church needs to save America. We can't let anything happen to this church and hurt the reputation of Jack Hiles because that means that we're dooming America.
1: That's that is that is very much along the lines of what I'm thinking. But what I want to ask you is how many people would you guess are in the inner circle? How many people do you think would be on that list of people who would absolutely there's no way they didn't know something was up?
0: He has to have kept that that circle small, though, right?
1: Do you want to do you want to throw out like a guess number?
0: I don't know, five, six.
1: I don't think so. That's,
0: so what, just
1: four? no, I think more. Just more. for the Hiles and this chick affair. So I just I did a count. I just counted. So you've got Hiles' family, him and his wife, his four children, and their spouses, Jenny and Vic, and their two children, and then their eventual spouses, the Colstons. Hiles personal secretary who would had, had to we know that the personal secretary covered for uh why Jenny wasn't in her office when she was hypothetically in her office with the door closed um, but there was no connecting door of course in my opinion i would think between 20 and 25 and 50 people were involved at a high enough level that they were actively daily covering Hiles tracks
0: that is nuts to me that that is bonkers like if if you're doing bad things if you're trying to run what is essentially like a criminal enterprise and i guess jack house was probably breaking some laws but not like but like he's he's at least breaking his own laws and breaking his own rules so who he's sort of running what is essentially a, a, a cartel you have to keep yourself a insulated from what is going on down the food chain and like second Keep the number of people who could turn snitch on you to as few as possible and have them be people who you can trust completely. They have to be people who are in on it with you. So they have to be just as bad as you so that if you go down, they go down too.
1: Because Hiles is breaking his own rules to the extent that if he were caught, he would lose everything. And I think that was what turned him on. I don't think it was the affair. I think it was the risk. But anyway, uh, I made a list of just people that I can name if we're being extremely conservative. 20 people who would have had to be actively covering for the Hiles-Nischik alleged affair. Let's add in the people who had knowledge of David's crimes and misdeeds, considering women that he was having affairs with, teenagers that he was molesting... I think that at least 20 more people would have to be actively involved in covering for David Hiles. Again, that is only First Baptist Church people. That's only people that I can name or I can put a name and say, oh, this person and their spouse. If I don't know the spouse's name, but this is people that I can like write down on a list.
0: You need like a whole strike team, you know, like like a whole strike team to manage David Hiles messy
1: Right, and, like, Jack Hiles has recruited all of these people to manage his son along with him as, like, the team leader.
0: 80 PR people all just working around the clock doing damage control.
1: But that gives me, like, 40 people.
0: That's so many people. That's, like, that's so many people that you could, like, if you were an investigator, and I guess Voile Glover is being a bit of an investigator here, and you were looking... Into Like if I were looking into this, you just have to find one person out of like 50 who's done something wrong that you could expose and then you leverage that and flip them.
1: So here's where I'm going with this. Jack Hiles had every single one of those people, however many there were, and I'm estimating at least 40. He had every single one of them convinced that they were the only person covering up for him. Hiles had every one of them personally convinced that the weight of this great ministry, the weight of hundreds and thousands of people's eternal salvation rested on their shoulders. None of those people were talking to each other. None of those people were talking to anyone else. They were all isolated. And isolation, as we know, is an excellent control mechanism.
0: So I think here we have a real reason why the IFB wanted to be sure that nobody read this book, because... Even after this book came out and after the scandal broke, Jack Howells I mean, he kept using the same tactics, right? And it still worked. Right. You know, I mean, he he lost some people, but he stayed pastor of First Baptist Church of Hammond until like 2001. And he was still like basically doing the same thing where he's like, I'm going to keep people in control and I'm going to keep demanding ultimate loyalty and people stuck with it. And you have all of these people who think that they're the only one who's covering for him. And you have all these, people they're like driving around to yard sales and buying the book.
1: And... I mean, at least that's what I think was going on.
0: Yeah, that's <clears> what <throat> we think. That, that would make sense. But like, it, like you wouldn't want a lot of people reading about this because then it would just become like common knowledge.
1: This book does lay out the evidence that points to this affair being real. It does lay out evidence that points to Dave Hile's sins and crimes being real. But that's not the point. The point of this book is exposing these tactics of cult control.
0: And it's all just out like this is so clear. It really is.
1: So there's one more like really interesting story that Judy tells us that kind of illustrates all of this and I think sews it up really well. Judy was at youth camp while David Hiles with her, was her youth pastor. Poor kid. She had it coming from every direction. Mm-hmm. David Hiles preached this sermon at youth camp. And this would have been before... He left for Texas. So we're looking at sometime in like very early 80s. He preached a sermon about you will become just like your parents because of generational sin.
0: What's generational sin?
1: Uh, we should do an episode. It's the concept that sin can be hereditary, like you inherited brown hair and brown eyes from your mom, and you inherited the sin of pornography from your dad. Ugh. So, like, in essence, Fundy's believe that Josh Duggar's kids are more likely to grow up to watch porn or consume child sexual abuse materials or abuse others they also sometimes believe in generational demons some fundies believe that you can be possessed because your parents were possessed and they passed down their demons to you it's a whole thing but judy presented with this concept freaked she was about 17 and she had been covering up for hiles and for her mother since she was just a little kid she had seen her parents be miserable in marriage she had seen the lies and the deceit. And the idea of having a marriage like her parents freaked her out. And she went into hysterics, like 10 years of covering up and hiding emotions were just spilling out. And of course, being IFB world, all of the camp counselors thought she was trying to get saved, but she wouldn't talk to them. And finally, Paula Hiles came to talk to her. So David's wife, when they were still married before Texas. And Paula, over two hours, convinced Judy to tell her what was going on. And for the first time ever, she told another person the truth about her mother and Jack Hiles that she had covered up for 10 years for most of her life.
0: So how did Paula respond?
1: Paula responded to kind of let her know, yeah, I already know about this. Judy asked mm. Paula not to tell David Hiles because she was afraid of him. And I want to read you Judy's quote. I mean, accurate. Yeah. And I want to read you Judy's quote because this is really interesting. So the question from Glover is, Did you fear Jack Hiles also? The answer from Judy. I feared them both, meaning David and Jack Hiles. I knew rumors were going around about Dave Hiles, and I knew some of them were not just rumors. And I knew what Dave Hiles was, and I knew he was just like his dad. I knew they were important to each other, and I thought if one of them found out, the two of them would kill me. It's not clear how literally Judy meant that but she does make it clear in the in the following questions and answers in this interview that she was at least somewhat afraid for her life. Paula and Judy actually ended up becoming friends and as time went on they compared stories and helped each other work through all of this.
0: Well, that's nice.
1: Yeah, you kind of got to love that they found each other.
0: So, I have a question about this book as a whole before we wrap up this episode. What's that? I want to I like I want to ask you to put yourself in your own head at like 17, 18. Um, So you're still sold out to the IFB now. Okay. Say you were alive when this book came out and you had the mindset um, that that you're still sold out, you know, 100% for Jack Hiles. And you, for whatever reason, had gotten a hold of a copy of this book and rather than destroy it or turn it over to somebody, you decided that you wanted to read it. Do you think that this book would have been an effective tool in breaking you out of the IFB?
1: I would say yes, if I had actually read it. I think the trick is getting someone to read it. I think even at my most sold out, if this book had just appeared under my pillow or fallen from the sky into my hands, I wouldn't have destroyed it. I wouldn't have turned it in. I was talking with my husband the other day about how he collects records and guitars. And I mentioned that isn't it kind of weird that I don't collect anything? And he said, "No, you do. You collect information, and that is so accurate. Uh, I'm an information hoarder.
0: Well, you also collect cult propaganda.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's not about owning the things. Like I don't have a collection of like physical things. It's not about that. It's about having access to the information that those things contain. So based on that." I don't think I would have let this book out of my hands no matter what because I've always been like I saved I have so much stuff that that if I can if I can handle it emotionally I'd love to talk about on the podcast like I have like notes and diary entries from high school and like I collect that kind of thing. So I don't think I would have let somebody take this book away from me or let on that I had it. The hurdle would have been me actually reading it. But I think if I had read it, it would have kickstarted my deconstruction process a lot earlier.
0: So I guess my follow up to that, and I want to tie this back to an episode we made a few months ago. um, What lessons can we take from this book that will help us get people around us who have maybe they've been a bit hypnotized been a bit indoctrinated into something really toxic how can we take some lessons from this book and help them get them to to kickstart that process
1: i have a couple of things that i think relate really well to our breaking people out of a cult episode number one i think the show not tell was just great in this book Glover printed these sermons in the first half of the book, and then he showed, in Heil's own words, how his sermons didn't match each other and his actions didn't match his sermons. And he went way beyond showing one example of hypocrisy, because one example can be explained away as like, well, everybody's beliefs change or everybody has slips of the tongue. He effectively showed a pattern of this in a way that is impossible to explain away. Then when we get to the witnesses to Brent and Paula and Judy, he showed us how these stories all line up and they all make sense together. Because one thing the Fundies really rely on is the scriptural idea that you need two witnesses to accuse someone. So the principle that that relates to from our deprogramming episode is listening to the person's beliefs. He played by the fundy rules by bringing multiple witnesses that all line up. Another thing that we talked about in that episode is being a safe place and a safe person for the person you're trying to help to bring doubts to. And that's another thing we see in this book. Just like I said in that episode, you should express your own doubts and don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Glover expresses his own doubts. He talks about where and why he had doubts. He's very vulnerable with that. And he makes the reader feel safe having doubts of their own.
0: So he's not just lecturing. This is why Jack Hiles is bad. He's not browbeating
1: not at all. He's just saying, this is what did it for me. Maybe you should consider this too.
0: And that is, I think, what we try to do on this show. And I think with that sentiment, it is time for us to wrap this episode up. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow the Leaving Eden podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden podcast on Twitter at Leaving Eden pod. You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Same as our subreddit, which is going to be reddit.com slash R slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Uh, This episode, there is going to be an extended version of this episode available on the Patreon. So if you want to hear that, that's where you'll find it. Uh, Sadie, do you want to plug your social media?
1: Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. You can follow me on Twitter at Hell yeah, Sadie, And you can follow me on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter 1. Uh, one of our listeners sent me a fantastic box of cult propaganda. It is like, way more than I was expecting to get, and I am so happy with it. And I've been uh, reading through some of that on TikTok and uh, just kind of doing a show and tell. It's been fun.
0: Yeah, that should be fun.
1: And I try to keep my TikTok like relatively trauma free. <laughs> it's a little bit more light and fluffy over there.
0: Yeah, I don't have TikTok, so I don't watch your videos, sadly. But if you post them as reels, then maybe I'll see them.
1: <laughs> you know, I feel like I feel like, yeah. you know, about all this stuff one way or the other.
0: Yeah, I'll just be like, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it next you'll get downgraded in my algorithm that's what's going to happen but you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N next time what do we have coming up next time
1: I think next time we're going to go through the, the Bill Gothard advanced seminar book
0: that's true. Yeah, we. Uh, speaking of occult propagandas that our listeners have sent to us, we had a listener send us the IBLP advanced seminar book, and we're going to go through that. And there is some wacky stuff in there, which I'm excited to talk about. I know Sadie's excited to talk about it as well. Until then, uh, we hope that you guys have a great day. Bye bye. That's no, no confusion. No.